Philippians chapter 3, and I've entitled the message, Press On, and that's what we hope to do today, and I think it's appropriate to do a little bit more extended uh, review than I usually like to do because of the passage and because it's so critical to the passage. So let me just start in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. We've already covered it, but a brief review. 3, 9, Paul says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so we think about what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and we think about what he's trying to tell us and what he's telling us through the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about alien righteousness. Alien righteousness has nothing to do with outer space. It has nothing to do with UFOs. Alien righteousness is a righteousness outside of ourselves. And that's how we're saved. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ. We're saved by the work of Christ. We're saved by what Christ has done for us. Not what my hands have done, but what he's done for me. And I loved that Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson quote. So I put it on here again. The lawmaker became the law keeper, but then took our place and condemnation as though he were the law breaker. That is so well said that uh, I just think we just need to, to keep that one ever in mind. And as we look at verse 9, this righteousness that Paul's talking about is Christ's righteousness. Paul knew he was righteous because Christ is the righteous one, and Paul's righteousness is a reality because he's in Christ. And it was his union with Christ that made the difference in everything. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more. As we go through the message today, he's going to talk about that very thing. And then this righteousness does not come from law keeping. And we saw that when Paul talked about the advantages that he had. He was a great law keeper. He said, well, how could that be? He, he, he was a murderer. He was he was, uh, you know, destroying the people of God. Yeah, in his zeal for God, his false zeal for God, he was doing that. But he was meticulous in keeping the law. And he thought he was wiping out heretics and doing God's service. Well, uh, God showed him better. Thank the Lord for that. And I think in God's mercy, uh, and uh, really even for our mercy's sake, we watch Paul endure so much persecution and unfair treatment himself. And Paul kept one thing in mind. He always kept in mind, that's what I used to be. That's what I used to do to others. Righteousness does not come from law keeping. In fact, in verse 8, he calls it rubbish. All the things that I was doing on my own, rubbish, garbage, trash, dung, things that are despicable. They actually uh, increased his guilt. So his tireless work and endless suffering came from gratitude to God, not what he could earn because he could earn nothing from God. It was all mercy. And this righteousness is appropriated by faith. If Paul knew anything, if Paul taught anything, if Paul had one thing firmly stuck in his mind and heart, it was that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And even that faith did not come from himself. It came from the Lord Jesus Christ as he was dramatically converted on the Damascus Road in a very unusual but very graphic way of the way that God saves sinners. 
and then this righteousness comes from God. And B.B. Warfield said, I liked this quote too, maybe not quite as poetic as Sinclair Ferguson, but very true. The gospel to Paul consists precisely in this, that we can do nothing to earn our salvation or to secure it for ourselves. God in Christ does it all. So let me ask you, is there a responsibility for you to repent and believe the gospel? Yes, yes, absolutely. I saw mouths going yes, yeah, and, they, and you were right. There is a responsibility for every person to repent and believe. Every person is responsible to God. And you are responsible to repent and believe. You are responsible to God. Every one of us in this room, absolutely, with our eternal souls hanging in the balance. But then we ask the balancing question, and, and Pastor Ken was asking balancing questions this morning, and this is the balancing question to that. Can any man repent and believe of his own accord? Can he stir himself up from within and manage the willpower it takes to come to God? And the answer is it takes a powerful work of the Spirit. A powerful work of the Spirit. And so may God be gracious. You know, seek the Lord while he may be found. But it takes a powerful work of the Spirit to actually cry out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Verse 10, by shorter review, says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And to know him was Paul's goal. He said, well, didn't Paul know about him? Yeah, Paul knew all about him. He knew about the Lord Jesus Christ. But he wanted to know him. Wanted to know him personally. Wanted to know him intimately. Wanted to know him in the, the biblical sense of, of really knowing in a personal relationship. Knowing and growing is something that a Christian learns to do more of day by day. This is literally to know him. It's more than knowledge. It's the end goal. And it's given in the next two phrases. Knowing his resurrection power. And we'll spend most of our message this morning talking about the resurrection and resurrection power. The power that raised Christ from the dead is exemplified in our life when we turn from death to new life in Christ. The sinner dead in trespasses and sins. The Holy Spirit makes us alive in regeneration. And uh, this is life from the dead. This is resurrection power. And then knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul was not sitting in prison thinking, I'm suffering uh, redemptively. You know, that I'm helping to pay for my sins by the suffering that I'm enduring. That was not the way that Paul was looking at it. He knew Christ suffered redemptively on the cross for him. And Paul refused to take the, the coward's way out. The wrath of God was no longer on him. But he refused to take the coward's way out. And he would suffer tribulation for the sake of the gospel. You know. Now, as we come to new material, verses 11, and we'll probably only go to 16 today. Um, I always... I am too optimistic when I come to my passages. I put down on the back of your outline. If you've ever noticed, there is a back of your outline that has an order of service there. Uh, I'd say, we're going all, going all the way to 4-1 today. Uh, well, if you want to stay till 1 o'clock, 
We can, okay? But uh, we got a couple more messages to go before we finish this section here. Because what we have is an amazing passage from verses 11 to 16. And uh, I worked hard to try to bring this to you the best way that I could. It's really pretty straightforward. And you can read it, but then you read it in other translations, and uh, some of them read a little bit differently, you know, using different words. And, and I know why they're doing that. They're trying to, to help us understand something that I'm going to try to help you understand here today, uh, but it's going to be a little bit difficult. Um, one of the primary books I used today to, to help me try to bring this across to you was a book that... Um, is a generic book of Bible translation that was meant to, to help uh, men and women that go to unreached peoples to take the Greek and then put it into that particular language. The things you can do, and, and you can do that generically. You can do that, that in such a way that you can apply it to each language, each, the donor language into each particular language. And of course you can see the way it's done in the English and you can see it's done in the major languages, and you can see the way it's done in the other languages. Well, as you read this in Greek, um, there are certain words that come out again and again. Paul's using them on purpose, and he's using them in different ways. And each of our translations try to pick up on this as best as they can. And we'll point them out as we go here. It shows through in the English, but it doesn't show through perfectly in the English. Because it really wouldn't make sense. It would be bad grammar. There'd be some difficulties that would happen. So our ideas here, our ideas are just fine. But I hope to, to gain a little bit more insight for you as we look and see Paul's reasoning here. And why he's saying what he says in the way that he says it. Okay, with that being said, let me just read 11 through 14 to you. After talking about the sufferings being conformed to his death... If by any means I may attain, and that's going to be, um, well, we'll be talking about that word in a minute. And if any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, or your version may say perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold on me. You say, well, there's something I can see there, you know. Lay hold on that for which Christ Jesus laid hold on me. That makes sense, you know. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the first word that I want to impress upon you, and let me... Look at my own outline here, so I make sure I do my words in the order I want to do them. The first word I want to press upon you is dioko. Dioko, those are two omegas that are there. Um, uh, and that's in verse 12. I press on. You know, it's what we're talking about. And it's the same word that we find in verse 6 of chapter 3, and you'd never guess it, concerning zeal. Persecuting, a form of the word dioko. Okay, doesn't look anything like it. And you say, how in the world can press on and persecuting be from the same root? Well, it is because of the way that dioko is used. And um, so what we're talking about 
is to pursue, to press forward, to persecute, to strive to or for a purpose. That's what dioko means. And there's a, it's a wide range of meanings, absolutely. And Paul uses that wide range for his own particular purposes. And it's not just in, in verse number 12. No, we find it again. Uh, let's see where it is here. I've got an English Bible. makes it a little bit harder to find. Um, uh, I press on, in verse number 12. And then, and then um, I press toward the goal is in verse 14 in an idiom form. And so we have these things coming together that way, pressing towards the goal, you know, and um, to pursue a goal, to press forward. The idea is vitality and vigor. That's what he's talking about. And what is the goal? Okay, what is the goal he's talking about? I press toward the goal. You find it back in verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what we have is the goal of the resurrection. The goal is eternal life. Paul is in Christ now, but his final chapter is not yet written. He's not yet attained the resurrection and perfection. That's what it says in verse 12. Not that I've already attained it. No, he's not perfect yet. He hasn't done that. The goal is still before him. He's still pressing on. And there are three related words then and phrases in verses 12 and 13. Paul wants to lay hold of, as I mentioned, you can see that in your English version there, that he can achieve the purpose for which Christ laid hold of him. And then in verse 13, my translation says apprehended, uh, but that's really just another form of this idea. Uh, I do not count myself to have laid a hold. Okay, hasn't attained it yet or apprehended it yet. And so really what we're doing here, twice the Greek word katalambano is being used. It's being used in the aorist active. I make take hold of the final goal. It's being used in the passive sense because he's the one that's being taken hold of by Christ himself. And he hasn't fully taken hold of what he's striving for yet. Christ has already fully taken hold of him, but he uses katalambano one more time in verse 13 to repeat what he says in verse 12, that he hasn't already done this. This hasn't happened yet. The overriding theme is the resurrection. And we've said it before, we'll say it again. It bears repeating that salvation comes to us in three tenses. If you're a Christian, it's three tenses of salvation for you. I have been saved from the wrath of God. I'm not under the wrath of God today. His power and his mercy and his grace has removed that wrath because Christ took it for me on the cross. We could even talk about Christ being slain before the foundation of the world. But even though that's true, that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world in the grand scheme and the purposes of God, it still had to take place, didn't it? And so about 2,000 years ago, it did take place. Okay, It wasn't plan B, wasn't plan C, wasn't something that just happened because, um, you know, Christ couldn't do anything about it. Said, oh. Christ knew exactly what was going to happen. He foretold what was going to happen, and he purposed that it would happen. I have been saved from the wrath of God. 
because Christ bore that wrath for me, we can actually say, well, I've been saved from sin. Yeah, I've been saved from sin. That's true. But really, God has saved us from himself. It was his wrath that would be poured out upon us if we were not in Christ. I've been saved from the wrath of God. I am being saved, sanctified by God's spirit today. And then what we're talking about mostly here in this particular passage is I will be saved. I will be saved. This will be finalized. Uh, we're seeing that in our Revelation series. We're going to see it for the next few, quite a few weeks in our Revelation series as we now get into the parts that, that uh, often people get excited about. And, um, you know, the, the last few chapters of Revelation, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, right in through there. You know, um, uh, these are the things that um, people wonder about and, and like to talk about. Well, I will be saved from sin and self and every evil thing in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, and every evil thing has been removed forever. One of my grandsons that's been visiting with us, now he's back in his own home state, but uh, interesting, he's, he's just a little guy, but he has grasped onto this concept of a new heavens and a new earth. And he's trying in his little mind of, of a four-year-old, trying to figure out what in the world that can be, a new heavens and a new earth, and, and what God's going to do. And he has a lot of questions about it, and he has a lot of thoughts about it, you know. And uh, we went, went to SeaWorld, and he loves sea animals, and he loves the ocean, he loves anything like that. He's really fixated on it, studies it, you know. And he thought, this is kind of like what heaven's going to be like, isn't it? Because <laughs> you know? it was so wait, great and wonderful. He was blown away by it. But no, heaven is not like SeaWorld. No. Uh, it, it's better. Much, much better. You know? Well, a little four-year-old mind trying to grasp these things. I, I'm glad that he's trying. You know? that, that's a great blessing. Maybe that's a sign that God's working in his heart and life. It certainly is a sign that his parents are, are teaching him. Well, Salvation comes in three tenses. Past reality for Paul on the Damascus Road changed him forever. A present reality, Paul living his Christian life before the Philippians, having to do it in jail, but still having enough freedom to be able to write to them uh, by inspiration and, uh, and help them to understand something. And now let's talk about that present reality, because he talks about that present reality. Okay. Forgetting those things which are behind, verse 13, and reaching for those things which are ahead. And I just, my mind just keeps going because there's so many different ways to say this. You know, I'm going to try to keep my thoughts in order here. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is doing something here that, that he's done in other places. Paul is a master illustrator. He can talk about the farmer and what the farmer does. And we learn from that. He can use military terms and talk about the military. And um, that is very helpful for us to understand too. Here is an illustration that he's using from what we would call the, the 
Well, they, they would morph into the Olympic Games of their day, you know. But running a race. One of the purest forms of, of athletic competition is to run a race. Doesn't take a lot of equipment. Oh, nowadays we have fancy shoes that you can buy and things like that. But, you know, they used to like to run barefoot, you know. And um, that would hurt, but <laughs> that's what they did. They would run. And um, this is where he's getting his illustration from. And he's forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward or stretching forward to those things that are ahead. And you get the idea of running, if you really think about it here, is that he's not looking back while he's running. What would he look back to? He'd look back to all the things that he accomplished in the flesh that's nothing but rubbish and dung. That's what he'd look back to. He's not looking back, okay? He's stretching forward. He's reaching forward. He's leaning forward. All these ideas are, are here in this particular thing. And so I started thinking about running myself and what running means and, and what happens when you're a runner. And uh, went on the internet and because I happen to know that there's been some famous times uh, that men were running a race and uh, they were way ahead and they looked back and then they stumbled, even fell, and uh, lose the race because of that, you know, just humanly speaking. And, uh, and a good runner isn't going to do that. So I was looking at some different running, um, you know, running blogs and people that were giving advice to, to like high schoolers and college guys that, that are runners and telling them what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And um, he's head, Paul's heading for the finish line. And he does this by leaning forward as a champion runner will do to achieve his best outcome, not looking back, which could cause him to stumble or fall. And then just to quote one of the websites I looked at, you know, he said, the no looking back rule is all about mental games. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I, I think it's true to an extent you know, although you can actually tie your legs up and, and uh, stumble and you're going to slow yourself up whenever you're looking backwards, you know. But he says it's a mental game. The only reason a runner looks behind them is to see if the gap is big enough that they can ease up on their pace. I go, yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense here. That's a good illustration. The Apostle Paul is, is running his race leaning forward and looking at the goal. Why would he look back? You know? Well, I'm doing good enough. It's time to take it easy now. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm okay. You know? It's time for me to, to ease off, relax, take it easy, not worry about this race anymore. I'm far enough ahead, things are good enough for me, you know. The Apostle Paul ran his Christian race until he hit that finish line and they took his head from his body. And then he met his Lord face to face. And that's what we're to do too. Our bodies may not hold up as well, but there should be no quitting in the Christian race. There should be no slacking off. There should be no laziness and saying, well, you know, I can look back and 
I've been a pastor for 39 years. Maybe it's time just to not worry about it anymore, you know. Well, that's, that's not what we do. We keep pressing forward. There's always a time that you may have to retire. Our bodies may just plain wear out or something else may happen. Those things can happen. That's beyond our control. That's in the Lord's providence. But just because we're lazy, no, not, not good enough. And that should never be excused. So let me read you what the, the website had to say uh, in a longer way, okay? Because I thought it was interesting. There's no looking back rule. It's all about mental games. The only reason a runner looks behind them is to see if the gap is big enough that they can ease up their pace. And then he says, if I'm a runner, two to 15 seconds behind you, and I see you looking back at me, I know I have you. Even if I'm as tired as you are, which I probably am, I'm going to use your glance as mental fuel to kick up my pace a notch. And I'm going to tell myself, whether it's true or not, that I'm the stronger runner between the two of us because you're the one looking back. Now, that's a little outside the text there. Okay, that's a little outside the text because we don't run our Christian race against anybody else. You know, we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what we do. And so we have to be looking constantly ahead, constantly forward that way. But looking back is dangerous in a, in a physical sense, in a race, and it's something that we don't need to do in our Christian race either. We need to be constantly looking ahead, looking ahead, looking ahead. We can look back, we can think about our testimonies and see the great things that God has done for us. Okay, that's not wrong. That's not wrong to do that. Paul gave his testimony many times in the scriptures. But we don't look back to say, I have done enough. It's good enough, I can stop now, or I can walk to the finish line. Uh, I've done well enough, you know. The Christian race is not a competition. We're running the race set before us, Hebrews 12.1. We're running our race. And the finish line is the resurrection. As I was reading my devotional work oh, in the last few weeks, one of the things really struck me, because we I was finishing up the book of Acts, because I'm using one of the Bible plans that have you all over the place. And from Acts 20 onward, one thing that really struck me, and I was going to count the times, and then I didn't do it, so now I don't have the number in front of me. But I was going to count the times the word resurrection was used by Paul from Acts 20 to the end of the book of Acts. And I know it's a lot, because he was constantly saying things like, for the hope of the resurrection, I am before you. And he would speak that way, and kept talking about the resurrection, kept talking about the resurrection, because Paul knew that the, the Pharisees, who we like to criticize, and rightfully so, we like to criticize them, the one thing they had in their favor, at least one of the things they had in their favor, is they did believe in a resurrection. They, they did believe in a life to come. And Paul had been a Pharisee. And so he appeals to that, appeals to that, and tries to show, uh, and hopefully, because he was hoping to win them, He's hoping to convince them. He's hoping that the Lord would use his words to save them. And many were saved. Many priests were saved. Uh, many scribes, many Pharisees did come to know the Lord. Okay. So it was Christ 
and his knowledge of Christ and what Christ has done for him and the reality of eternity with Christ that drove him in his motivation. Now let me ask you a question. Are you absolutely sure that you will live with Christ forever? Do you know that for yourself? Do you really know that? I have to ask myself that. Do I really know that? I kind of came to the conclusion in the last week or so that I probably know it, but need to know it better. Need to understand it stronger. Need to have a more vital realization of that. It'll drive us forward, you know. Because think about this. What if there was no resurrection? What if your death was like being in a dark, being in a room like this, and then you turn off the light and it's nothing but darkness? And what if you died and you ceased to exist? And you wouldn't even know that you ceased to exist. You'd just be gone. It'd be over. Nothing. You died, you're gone, it's over forever, and you can't even know that it's over because you have no consciousness. Well, you know, that's a horrible thought. For the lost, it might be a comforting thought. In, in their own sad way, some people have come to that conclusion and that's just what it is. I'm just gone. If I'm anything, I'm a memory. It's just over. But you know, some have come to that conclusion. And so this life is so miserable. This life is so horrible. I would rather be nothing and commit suicide. Believe me, those kind of thoughts can lead to suicide, which is a grievous sin and a terrible thing. And uh, you didn't get rid of your problems, but you left a lot of problems for everybody else. Okay, that's just the facts of the matter. Don't ever let Satan and self cause you to contemplate suicide. Well, what if it was nothing but, what if it was nothing? What if it was nothingness? What if it was ceased to exist? 1 Corinthians 15, 19. I'll read it to you out of the Amplified Bible. I'm thinking of, I'm trying to see if I put it on your outline there. Um, I think that I did, but um, I've jumbled my notes, so I have to find my outline. There it is. Yep, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, from the Amplified Bible, which isn't one of my favorite translations, but did a good job here of at least interpreting it. If we who are abiding in Christ have hoped only in this life, and this is all that there is, you notice in brackets, just to kind of let you know that's being implied here, then we are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. You'd be running 
to a finish line that doesn't even exist. That's pretty sad, if you think about it. You're running, thinking you're going to achieve something, and it'd be nothingness. That would be something that would cause us to be pitiful and miserable. But you know, the Bible's true, and Christ is true. And it isn't true that we cease to exist. We will exist for all eternity. God has brought us into being, and uh, we will continue to live, heaven or hell. Now, that's the reality for every person. And that should cause us to run. That should cause us to, to strive, you know. So if it grips you, truly grips you, it will put all of your problems, trials, and difficulties into perspective. It doesn't take them away. It doesn't cause them to cease to exist. It doesn't re remove everything. But you know a better day is coming. And of course, Karl Marx and the communists hated that. They said, religion is the opiate of the people. You're miserable today, but don't worry, you're going to be happy someday. You know, and that's what they claimed uh, leaders used, religious leaders used that to help people not want to, to have more or do better. You know, well, which wicked, wicked communist system, all you got to do is see the millions that have been killed and executed because of communism. Well, you know, if you do not have this hope of the resurrection, you'll have to grasp onto this present world as long as you can, You'll have to compromise and do anything you can to cling to this present world because all of your hopes are wrapped up in this present world. But are your hopes in Christ and the power of his resurrection? Or are you focused on this world and how long you can stay in it and what you can get out of it for a few more short years? We're going to conclude with 15 and 16, a little bit easier. Um, can really just have one major issue to deal with here. 15 and 16. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, and some translations go further, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Okay. And of course, we're going to see that same mind again uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, Yodian Sententi. There, but um, okay. So what what are we talking about? Well, it's one of those things that the translators have tried to help us here, but they've kind of uh, shielded us from some of the Greek, you know. And some translations have been just uh, pretty straight out there with it. Um, no, it would say in verse twelve, "Not that I've already attained or am already perfect," they would say, and then they would say, "Therefore, let as many of us as are perfect have this mind." And that would be a very proper translation of your moving from the Greek word into the English word. Very proper translation. But it's also a contradiction, is it not? It's a contradiction to say, uh, I, I'm not already perfect, and let as many of us as are perfect have this mind. And I think you can know why. And that's why our translators of almost all modern translations say mature. Because the word perfect can be the word Greek word perfect can be mature, and uh, the perfect ones actually, uh, the way that it's used in verse number fifteen, 
That's why it's translated that way, the perfect ones, um, mature ones. And it would appear that that was one of the ways that the early church talked about each other. Um, those that were older in Christ, the mature ones, they would use that term, you know. So it's obviously not a contradiction. The point should be clear. Mature Christians uh, do realize the need of a careful, guarded walk with the Lord. And to think otherwise shows a lack of maturity. But as true Christians, with a little more honest experience, uh, we all learn what Paul is saying is true and learn to distrust ourselves and to trust in Christ. Now, I put on your outline one more thing, just a different flavor here of what we looked at today. I, I used the ESV as an example. There are about three other translations I could have used. I just used this one, though, uh, that says it a little bit differently, but you'll see the same ideas. It says in verse 12, Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See that idea there? Just a different way of saying it. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. And they purposely have, have done that to show you the three, the three things, the made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. There it is again. So they did a good job trying to, to show you in English uh, the idea of what is happening in the Greek there. And there's an old saying that you can be so heavenly minded that you have no earthly good. And that can be true. But it's a proverb. And like many proverbs, you can also look at it in reverse. You know? You can be not heavenly minded at all. And not really realize the goal for which you're stretching. And the goal for which you're striving. You know? The resurrection is the blessed hope. The coming of Christ. The resurrection. These are all given in one term that we could call the blessed hope. It's our finish line. It's our ultimate destination. We live for Christ today. And we live in Christ today. And we will live with Christ in perfect union for all eternity. Let me just close with a scripture. Turn to Revelation, or not Revelation, Romans chapter 5. I'm going to close with this. Romans chapter 5, just the first five verses. Without comment, sums it up very well. Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because of the love of God has been shed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us.
May the Lord help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to apply your word. May Jesus Christ receive the glory in each of our lives as we run our individual race. Let us ever be straining forward, leaning forward, not looking back, glad for what you've done for us, Father, but pressing ever onward, never resting on the laurels of what have already been done, whether it be in the flesh, as Paul talks about, or even as Paul talks about the things that the God did through him after salvation. Help us never to rest upon our laurels, but instead ever look to you and to the perfect day. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.